sauce salads and scrambled eggs. Yeah. Oh my. Hey, maybe I see my bitch confused. Yeah, maybe. But I all got right, you. Babe, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Just, just unleashing uh, our inner Fraser this evening that, uh, or morning, depending on when you're listening to the show. If y'all don't know, we are the mentors. Oh, we are the mentors. Oh. But we're also major Fraser, <laughs> Fraser fans. Uh, we are so much so that uh, this is the whole reason why we do a talk show. Actually, yeah, it's because of Fraser. Every time I watch Fraser. I or every time we sit down to record, I try to channel my inner Fraser, and Sergey tries to channel his inner Roz, and together we uh, come up with this. Hey, I'm proud to be Roz. She is feisty and not to be reckoned with, but alas, she's a great sidekick. I'm listening. No, I'm listening. I'm listening, Vadim. Okay, we're listening. Actually, we're not listening because there's no one on the other end of this. But we are the mentors. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite having no experience, money, or connections. That's right, Sergey. And sometimes it's just the two of us talking to you through the headphones. Hope you're enjoying our voices this period of time whenever you're listening to it. Uh, because today we're going to talk to you about a topic that actually a lot of founders ask us about. Almost, Almost every, every founder, yeah. not surprisingly. Uh, we'll, we do work with startup teams through accelerators. Uh, I work in venture capital as well. Vadim's a lecturer of entrepreneurship. So we meet a ton of companies that want to learn how to raise money from investors. So we're going to address that today. Although we're not going to get too much into the how. I think we'll do that in another episode. Mm-hmm. But we will help you figure out whether you should pursue fundraising. Now, first we want to throw out a couple stats to help you understand the reality of the situation and what fundraising is all about. More importantly, to help you understand where money and capital typically comes from for most entrepreneurs out there. So according to Fundable, which is the source that we use to get this information, only 0.91, that's 0.91% of startups are funded by angel investors, while only 0.05% are funded by venture Capitalists. So if you don't know the difference, angel money is typically money that comes in early on in the process and VC, venture capital, also known as institutional investment, although that can mean many things, uh, comes in later on during the growth stage when companies are already taking off. And sometimes angels will invest in later rounds, but typically any one wealthy individual, that's what an angel investor is, they're going to write typically smaller checks than most funds, and that's why they they usually invest in the early days. So if such a small percentage of money comes from angel investors and VCs, which basically are all professional investors, where does the money come from otherwise? 57% of startups are funded by personal loans and credit, and 38% receive funding from family and friends. So by far, almost every startup you'll ever meet or any company you ever read about in the news is funded through either friends and family, which is effectively like taking a loan and hope, or, you know, it really depends on what your situation is uh, with your family, but sometimes you're just given a grant effectively, or through a bank loan or most likely credit cards. A lot of stories that you read are founders that first maxed out their credit cards and then later on figured out how to get money. We don't necessarily recommend this. It's one of the riskiest ways to, quote unquote, find capital. Uh, But a lot of people end up going that route. Well, here's what I'll say. If you come from a career background where 
you maybe you quit your job and you're fairly certain that if the thing fails that you're working on, you'll be able to get another job that pays well, then maybe you can take the risk of uh, using credit card debt. And in fact, Vadim and I did fund our last startup, Tacit, which we started in 2015, mostly through credit card debt. Both of us took, took on credit card loans and it took us a while to pay it off. So yep. I don't recommend it to everyone. No, it's high, really high interest rate, even if you do have uh, 0% the first year. But by the way, the other ways that we founded our operations, uh, both us and our co-founder, Anim at the time, was through taking on contract gigs. So doing some consulting here and there, some hours, uh, in order to essentially pay rent and put money on the table and sort of, quote-unquote, be ramen profitable. Uh, that's an option as well. It's a little bit difficult, though, because if you're doing contract work, it can be hard to focus on the business. So it depends on the situation, as we always say. But you got to do what you got to do. If that means the company will survive and live another day, then contract work can work too. But like I said, we've done it through credit cards. Uh, bank loans are a little harder to get. You typically need collateral. So if you have a cash flow heavy business and you can prove, let's say if you have some assets like a house and you're willing to put your house on the line, that is an option. Most people don't do that. Uh, but yeah, that's effectively how most money is found. In other words, capital, because in, in, you do need money to build a business, at least at some point. Now it's cheaper than ever, but most companies never raise money from investors. So understand that coming in. And even the ones who do 67% of them, anywhere between 67 and 75%, depending on who you ask, still end up failing. At some point, they either, they either run out of money, they can't raise more money, or they spend more than they get in revenue and ultimately have to close shops. So just because you raise venture capital doesn't mean you're going to have a successful exit or a successful company. And when I say exit, I mean selling your company or IPOing. That's how investors make their money back. But why does it feel like everybody around us is raising money from professional investors. Why is it sort of the standard that you should be able to raise money? It's pretty simple. It's the news. It's the media. It's what we read on TechCrunch. It's the things that kind of bubble up to the surface. It's when people raise, let's say, a 9 or $10 million venture capital round and they start celebrating because they were able to raise money from investors when in reality there's not much to celebrate because you still have to prove that your business can be successful. It's essentially a result of uh, what's hyped up. It's not reflective of the reality of what's actually happening. Yeah, I mean, think about it. No one's going to write about companies that didn't raise venture capital, right? I mean, smaller companies, unless they're doing something really interesting that's newsworthy, are just simply not going to be written about. So ultimately, you only read about people that do raise VC money or investor money, where it's in the millions that it's something newsworthy to write about, or companies that end up raising money and then failing. Those are really the two, two examples that you're going to find in the news. And so if you keep on re reading about people that raise money and even have friends that have raised money, you can fool yourself sometimes in believing that, hey, anybody can do it, or if they could do it, I certainly can. But there are a few, I think, core minimum requirements that you need to have before you even consider raising venture capital, because otherwise it'll be a huge waste of time. And Vadim and I can tell you countless stories of companies that spent months and even years trying to chase investor money, whether angel money or VC money, and ultimately not being able to do so. And instead, they could have been focusing on their business that whole time. One major assumption that people make is they think that raising money from investors is going to give them the freedom that they need to focus on their business. And unfortunately, quite the opposite is often true. When you raise money from someone, they will now want their money back. <laughs> That's how it works. So you take money from a bank, they're going to expect it back with interest. You raise money from an investor, they really hope they can get it back. The smart investor obviously will not 
invest money in such a risky proposition as startups uh, because they'll know that there's a high chance that they'll lose their money. But still, once you raise money, you're effectively working now for that investor. And so you don't necessarily have as much freedom as you think you would. And it also takes most companies a long time to raise money. If your company is doing really well, you might be able to raise capital within... I mean, I've never seen anybody do it less than three months. The stories that you read about people doing it in a week or two weeks, they got lucky or they essentially maybe had people that they knew that were really rich and didn't care about burning the money. That happens one in a million times. But typically it takes months, sometimes longer, up to a year if not longer to raise money. And once you get into the business of fundraising and you raise, let's say, half a million dollars, you do really well with that half a million dollars, guess what? In six to 12 months, you're going to have to go out and raise more money. So it's like a constant cycle of fundraising once you get into it. And your investors will push you to grow as fast as you can, spend money as fast as you can. They don't want you to just sit on that money in the bank. They want you to spend it. So you're going to essentially be in a position where you have to just constantly be raising. So if you still think that you need to raise money or you're just curious, what does it take to get there? We're going to break it down and talk about the motivations behind an angel investor and a VC and what the differences are. And then we're going to explain to you the types of people that are typically better positioned to raise money. First, I will say, just to kind of uh, finish my comment about not having as much freedom as you thought you would, right? Angel investors, typically, when you're bringing on angel investors, you're going to have more than one. Some cap tables, or in other words, uh, a record of how many, who your investors are and how much money they've put in and how much equity they got. Uh, some of them have dozens of investors. And this is where the hard things come in because just like dealing with customers, with investors, you're dealing with humans and personalities. And all it takes is a few investors that are difficult to deal with. And all of a sudden they become essentially a full-time job for you to manage their expectations, respond to their emails, send them uh, sort of countless amounts of documents and information that they ask for as well. So that's one way you could lose freedom. And then with a venture capital firm, sometimes they even get control in your company and put people in that are going to help you run operations. And if they think you're not making the right decision and they're on your board, you might not even last. They could fire you. There are ways to fire you. Uh, it gets a little bit into the weeds. We probably won't talk too much about that. But ultimately, it's important to vet who you bring on because they are just like your employees, essentially. So now we're going to talk about if you still think that you should raise money or you think that your business is the type of business to raise money. Let's talk about really quickly the motivations of angel investors versus venture capitalists. Uh, I think we can bulk them all into hey, they need high returns. They need to get, like Vadim said, a return for their money. Really quickly, Sergey, can you clarify uh, seed investors versus angels? Because a lot of people get confused by that. Sure. Uh, seed really just means it's a stage, right? So actually now there's even pre-seed. But seed is typically the stage, the first time at which you raise venture capital when you're early on in your business's life cycle. There are angel investors that are typically the first ones that give you money to get you to the point where then you can raise money from venture capitalists. And, and usually the first institutional money, meaning a fund that invests in you, will be a seed fund. They specifically look at early stage companies that either haven't raised money or raised a little bit of money, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And a lot of seed rounds are between, I would say, half a million to two million dollars. It really ranges, depends on the fund, but that's sort of the ballpark. So if it's a seed fund, it typically means they put money in when you're still essentially a seed to help you grow and it's smaller checks. And obviously venture capital funds are bigger and they write bigger checks. The other slightly confusing thing is with angels, which essentially are independent investors, uh, they sometimes form angel groups. 
where effectively they have an investment thesis and they look at deals and look at companies together as a group uh, and then decide if they should invest. And sometimes they have rules where the angel group needs to make a unanimous decision. So every single angel, let's say there's 12 of them that are looking at a particular deal, need to decide together if it's worth investing in. And those are obviously a little bit harder to get versus just an individual angel. So just a few clarifications on terminology before we move into the the motivations uh, of an angel investor and a venture capitalist. Yeah, so an angel investor is using their own money to invest and a fund takes money from other institutions or individuals and invests it on their behalf. So by definition, their motivations vary a little bit. Yes, they both want their money back and there is a reason why they're investing in such a risky asset as a startup that could fail. It's because the higher risk, the potentially higher reward. You're not going to get, you might get eight to maybe 20% if you're just giving a loan to somebody per year. But if you have a successful company, I mean, look, uh, whoever invested in Facebook or Instagram, I mean, they, they could have gotten hundreds, if not thousands, if not 10,000s X, the amount that they invested, right? So they do want a big return on their money. That's why they're investing in this really risky way. But for angels in particular, when you're approaching angels, you need to kind of understand what their motivations are. First of all, they want to feel helpful typically. They want to either have a network where they can make introductions for you or they have some sort of expertise in the field, maybe a personal interest in the field. Maybe they've worked in the industry for decades and they just know a lot about it. That's It's a personal motivation for them. A lot of times they invest based on their emotion, right? They Because they really, maybe they wanted to start a company like that back in the day or or they started a company like that and, and it failed. And now they want to try again through you vicariously, right? And so that's- But really, they don't want to do the work. But they, yeah, that's, the, that's the key difference. Yes. Is they are trusting that you as the entrepreneur is going to uh, is going to be willing to do the hard work to get the business moving forward. And of course- all of them really care about the team and the people and they have to believe in you. So if you're looking for angel investors, look at people who are in the industry who may be helpful to you in some way because of the know-how or their network. And maybe they've invested in similar types of companies. It just shows that they might be interested because it is more of an emotional decision for them versus venture capitalists. I mean, let's let's face it. Venture capitalists are also humans. They're managing other people's money, but they also invest somewhat on emotion. But oftentimes they actually have a thesis behind it. And I will say very active and experienced angel investors also have a thesis, but VCs by definition have to have a thesis because they're raising money oftentimes from places like mutual funds or pension funds. So they are required to report to those funds how they make their investment decisions. So typically they have some sort of a thesis behind the type of companies they invest in, the stage of companies they invest in. Meaning if they invest, let's say $2 million in companies and you're out there raising $500,000 in your first round of seed funding, don't approach the funds that only invest in series A or invest a couple million dollar checks, right? They will never look at you. You're too small. So figure out funds that have a thesis that matches the stage that you're in, the industry that you're in, uh, and understand that because they're investing limited partners money or other people's money, even more so than angel investors, they want the ability to have a 10 to a hundred time return on their money. And why is that? Well, it's something called two and 20. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but that's actually a lot of the fund models for venture capitalists, even hedge funds and private equity funds, is the way that venture capital funds make money is they charge a 2% fee per year, so 2% of the total fund size, and they can only take 20% of any returns, meaning that 80% of that money goes back to the investors, of course. So because of those economics and because 
75% of the companies that they invest in will go to zero or maybe some of them will return their money back. That means that every single company they invest in has to have the potential to return 100 times their money. So it can't be a $50 million exit. It has to be potential for hundreds of million dollars, if not billions of dollars in exit. And we've seen this happen countless times where you know we have a friend that raises a few million dollars from an investor and then a few years later they get an acquisition offer for $20 million, which to them would make them a millionaire, except for the fact that A, the investors get their money back first always, right? They're taking the biggest risk. And B, there's typically some kind of clause on the term sheet, on the agreement that says we need to get 5x, 10x back, whatever it is, uh, in order for this investment to be worth it for us. So they will turn down acquisition offers if they think it's too low and if they think they have an opportunity to have a higher exit if they just wait another year or two or whatever. And because almost every one of their investments fails anyways, that risk is worth it for them to take. Because if they do make, let's say, that 10x or 20x return, then it's going to essentially save their fund. And so they'll write it off as a loss if it doesn't work. And even though you may have become a millionaire through this process, this is what you sign up for when you raise venture capital funding. So now you understand the motivations of investors and you understand potentially what stage you might be able to raise capital with. You think that your business has the potential to be hundreds of millions of dollars in value to billions of dollars in value within five to 10 years. That's typically when they need to show a return for their investors if it's a fund. So then what types of people do funds and angel investors actually invest in? Because we said it was you know, less than 1% ever raise outside money outside of their family and credit card loans, right? So who are people investing in? Well, I would say that there are four, there are probably way more, but there are four core categories of people or four core things you need to have, sort of boxes you need to check off to be an attractive investment. The first one that almost all of us will not meet is a track record. In other words, if you had other successful exits, if you had a company that you grew to, let's say millions of dollars, and you made a return for your investors or other investors in the past, that shows that there's a high likelihood. And as a matter of fact, there have been countless studies done that shows a high correlation between somebody that's already had an exit and their propensity to have another exit event. And so then obviously, it's a less risky proposition. These are the people that typically can raise money very, very quickly a, because they have a Rolodex, and B, because they can just knock on a lot of doors and just say, look, I already made millions of dollars in returns for these investors. Don't you want to do the same? And for anybody that was born after 1990, Rolodex <laughs> is actually like a physical thing where people used to keep their contact people information. People know Rolodex. It's like a rolling thing that you have business cards in. I mean, I don't I don't know. I feel like there's somebody that's like 20 there or 15. That's or well, Maybe there's no 15-year-olds listening to the episode. But if you are, that's what a Rolodex is. But yes, a track record. Pretty much anyone that you read about that raises money very quickly is only able to do so. Or anyone that you read about that raises money on an idea, right, without any traction, is only able to do so because they had experience of doing it before and successfully getting money back to their investors. The next thing that you pretty much always have to have if you're going to raise money from investors is deep domain expertise in the area where you're looking to build a business. Either you've worked in the industry for a long time or you have some sort of knowledge. Maybe you went to college, maybe you got graduate degrees, maybe uh, you, you worked for another company that sold a certain product that was in a similar industry. Shows that you understand the ins and outs of the industry. You understand how customers buy you understand exactly how the product works in a way that maybe other people don't. 
if you ever watch Shark Tank, you'll notice that uh, Damon John will typically invest in businesses that are sort of closer to home to him, right? Clothing lines, retail type businesses and the like. Uh, and all the other investors will be more likely to get in on a deal where they can offer value beyond just the money. And this is where domain expertise comes in and also de-risks the investment from the entrepreneur side of things. You are more likely to get money if they believe, if the investor believes that you can get customers easily, can get partners easily, distribution, whatever it is, right? It de-risks the investment. It means that you're not just green. You're not just somebody completely new that they're betting on. You're someone that's likely to get the business somewhere and therefore are a less risky investment proposition. Yeah, even though this is the most risky way to invest money, still, of course, investors want to minimize risk as much as they can. And since they don't have data typically on how well your business is doing because you're not really that far along yet, especially if you're raising money at the seed stage or pre-seed stage, then domain expertise or a track record are a must. The other thing that's really important to have is defensibility. Not every product is intrinsically defensible, but... Um, investors a lot of times will ask you questions to figure out how easy is it for somebody else to copy you because if there's someone else that will copy you and they have more experience or they have more money in the bank then you just have a lower likelihood of winning of succeeding so how do you build in defensibility well one way is intellectual property protection trademarks copyrights those are the legal ways with which you can protect your company. Of course, we're not going to get into the details of how to do that or what they actually mean. You, we, we can talk about that in another episode. But another way to have defensibility, you might have heard of funds or investors that love investing in companies that have network effects, right? So if you're the kind of business that has shown an ability to grow a user base really quickly, Facebook back in the day, once they already got a couple million users, it was going to be already pretty hard to copy them, right? So and LinkedIn as well. Once you build up a network of people that are using LinkedIn, it's gonna be really hard for somebody to come in and build another professional network. So are there any other ways that you can build defensibility, Vadim? I would say probably the best way is if you have that penetration in the market, right? Uh, so for example, if you have a marketplace, right? And a marketplace typically has two sides to the model, supply and demand, uh, or let's say even um, uh, eBay, right? They have all the people that are selling products and all the people that are buying it. That's intrinsically hard to replicate, as Sergey said, because you need a critical mass of buyers and sellers for the business to work and for the economics to work. Uh, but even a dating site like Tinder, right? It's a less risky investment if Tinder has a bunch of men and women on their app already because it's going to be difficult to replicate that for a brand new dating site uh, because they took the time to grow it city by city and they probably did a bunch of grassroots efforts. I know when I read about Bumble, uh, she went uh, from their, their founder went from university to university growing it organically through frat her houses and sororities. That's hard to do and you won't have somebody coming out of the gate that can replicate that really easily as well. Another way that's a little bit weaker to build defensibility is a brand, right? If you've established yourself as a brand already for a certain thing, a certain type of product, it's going to be really hard for other people to, to copy you. Coca-Cola, for example, is really hard to copy. Even though many people already know how to make a sugary soda, they just have that brand, right? Now, bad example, they're not a startup, but you get what I mean. Another way to have defensibility, it comes a little bit... It, crosses over a little bit with domain expertise. If you have some brilliant engineer on your team that has some knowledge that no one else in the world has, or maybe like a tiny percentage of the population has, that makes you way more defensible because again, it's going to be difficult to copy. 
I would say the last of the four main things that we're looking at here as far as what you need to have in order to be attractive to an investor. In other words, what you if you don't have these things, then you shouldn't raise money from investors is go to market execution. In other words, proof that you can do the things that you say you're going to do with the money once they give you the money. Always better than just hypothesis. Yeah, so of course, a classic example, Mark Zuckerberg, he never raised money before he uh, was succeeding with Facebook. He never had a successful business or anything, really. Oh, I he, think he did, actually. He, oh, he did, really? Yeah, he sold a business that he started in high school, I think, for like a, a million dollars or something. I don't think he made a ton of money with it. Because, did not know that. Yeah, but he did have a, some small company that he started, I think, in high school. All right, well, terrible example. Uh, <laughs> but you know, but why was he able to raise a ton of money? Well, because Facebook was growing like gangbusters, and I hate everybody that uses that word, so I'm going to retract it. <laughs> Facebook was growing like hotcakes. No, no, hotcakes don't grow. Uh, what grows? Weeds. Okay, but that's a negative connotation. Fine, they were growing like a weed from campus to campus. Now they're like a weed, and they were a runaway train. And a lot of investors, namely Peter Thiel, uh, recognized that they had a lot of market potential. And so, of course, when you have that execution, when you're growing, when it seems like there's no stop in sight, somebody out there, some investors, and in their case, venture capitalists at that point, will believe in you, and then they start competing for the deal. And once they, once one investor, venture capitalist, hears that another investor is looking at a deal, they get excited, it can get competitive, and then as an entrepreneur, that works to your advantage because you can set the terms of the deals, which is exactly what... Zuck did, and which is why he is still at the helm of Facebook. A lot of people, to prove that they're able to get some go-to-market traction, they'll raise money on platforms like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. In fact, I know several companies that raised anywhere between 50000 to a couple hundred thousand on websites like Kickstarter that then were able to successfully raise funds from investors because they got proof in the market that people want to buy their product and that it was a big market opportunity. Another way to prove go-to-market execution is let's say that you have a product that is a very technical product that you sell to businesses or you sell to hospitals or you sell to somebody that is hard to sell to, but that each contract is going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in value. Well, if you already have relationships with those businesses, if you already have letters of intent with those businesses that they will purchase the product once it's at a certain stage, maybe you've done some contract work for those businesses that will turn into larger product type of contracts, that's evidence that you can make a dent in the market and have an ability to capture some of that market. One misconception that a lot of especially product-focused CEOs and, and founders have is that building a product alone counts as execution. Now, of course, having something out there uh, that can actually be used by people does count as some execution, but if you've spent a year building a product and no one's using it, no one's going to care how many engineers worked on it. No one's going to care how brilliant you think it is. All they'll see is that no one's using it, which actually proves that it doesn't have much value in the market, nor does it fulfill any particular need. So, while, of course, working on a product, getting a minimum viable product out there in the market is important, don't think that just by having a beautiful product, even if it's well-designed, gives you that execution. It's mostly about the customers and the market size and the opportunity. And I will add as well about the go-to-market thing, growth is really important to show, growth and engagement. So, meaning, if somebody out there comes to an investor and they have 10,000 users or even let's say 20,000 users, and they've had 20,000 users for the last six months or for the last year, 
and only a percentage, a certain percentage of them are engaged. That may sound like a decent number, but guess what? If there's another startup around the corner that just went from 500 users to 2,000 users in a couple of days, and now they're rounding the corner at 10,000 users in a couple of weeks, well, guess what? They're showing fast growth, and it makes me as an investor feel like I might miss the boat if I don't invest in them right now. And the math has to make sense as well. You might be making, let's say, $2 million a year on whatever widget you're selling, but if it costs you $1.9 million a year to create it and sell it, it's not as interesting. If you have a bunch of inventory you have to hold, there's inventory risk, and the investors now understand that that why you need so much capital to make, uh, let's say, six figures or low six figures in actual profits. So there's a lot of different factors that investors look at when making this decision, uh, and go-to-market execution obviously is one of them, but it's the devil is still in the details, and even though you might it might seem like you have a lot of execution, uh, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get money from professional investors, which is another reason why most people never do raise money from professional investors. So we hope that this episode doesn't necessarily dissuade people from going after fundraising or going after investment dollars. We think that, you know, you guys and gals know that we are proponents of taking risks, but we also want you to take calculated risks, which is why if you're going to approach investors, you should know who is more likely to say yes, so you don't waste a lot of time. And you should also know what boxes you need to check off as a business in order to be in an interesting investment opportunity. Otherwise, focus on friends and family or funding it in other ways. Try to get creative with how you get your capital. Many companies that are able to get access to capital quickly and easily actually end up failing because they're not as resourceful. So believe it or not, there is some value in not having it easy, but also understand the reality of the situation, which is what we've been saying. Most founders and entrepreneurs that need capital to move forward have to find creative ways like getting it from friends, family, maxing out their credit cards. Don't do that. But, you know, do what you got to do, I guess, and then taking on side gigs if they need to. So good luck on your journey. We hope that you are able to get to that next level and that your company survives. But also remember, if it doesn't work now, you can always get another at bat in the future. And be honest with yourself. Know what you want an outcome to be. Do you really want to build a billion dollar company? Because that's a whole level of stress that not a lot of people want to take on. Or maybe you want to build a $10 million company, which is awesome and can feed you for the rest of your life. So... Hopefully you had some good takeaways from this episode and please shoot us a note, send us an email or leave a review on iTunes. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about next and we're happy to do so. It's Sergey and Vadim of The Mentors. Mentors. Have a good night and see you next week.